0: today, conversation between Mary and Elizabeth. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, nothing is impossible with the Lord. Here Paul is giving his final defense about his apostleship to the Corinthian church. He's going to remind them of two things, the supernatural signs before them and the selfless service to them. And in this defense, we will learn one of the secrets to living a happy and joy-filled life. My message is entitled, Spending on Others. Would you please stand with me as I read from our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11, Spending on Others, 2 Corinthians 12, 11. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches? Except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me for this wrong. Behold, The third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, that is, your stuff, your money, but you, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Father, thank you for your word. The principles, the power, the truth, the salvation that comes to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, I pray for each one who has this precious gift in our hearts that we would learn how to be able to live out our salvation and let others see Christ in us. Father, I now pray for those who may be amongst us that are not sure of where they will spend eternity when they die. May the Spirit of God do a spiritual work and to convict them of sin of righteousness and of coming judgment, that they, even in this service, might turn to you and receive the unspeakable gift, the joyous gift of knowing the living God and becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Bless now your word to our hearts. Uh, Give us insight. Give us spiritual growth that we might be more like Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Gift of the Magi is a Christmas story that was published in a New York newspaper on December 10, 1905, 110 years ago this week, the story was published. It's about a young married couple dealing with the challenge of buying secret Christmas gifts for each other with very little money. Young Jim Dillingham and his wife, Della, they're living in a modest apartment, and they have only two possessions between them in which they take pride. Uh, Della's beautiful, long, flowing hair to her waist, and Jim's shiny gold watch, which had belonged to his father and his grandfather. On Christmas Eve, with only $1.87 in hand and desperate to find a gift for Jim, Della goes out and she sells her hair for $20 to a nearby hairdresser to be used as a wig. And she buys a platinum pocket watch chain for Jim's watch for $21. That leaves her $0.87. Satisfied with the perfect gift for Jim, Della returns home and prepares dinner at 7 p.m., Della sits at the table waiting for Jim to come home. Unusually late, Jim walks in and immediately stops short at the sight of Della, who had previously prayed that she was still pretty to Jim. Della then admits to Jim that she sold her hair to buy him his present. Jim gives Della her present, an assortment of expensive hair clips and combs, now useless, that his wife's hair is short. Della then shows Jim the chain that she bought for him, to which Jim confesses that he sold his watch to get money to buy her the combs. Although Jim and Della are now left with gifts that neither one can use, they realize how far they are willing to go to show their love for each other and how priceless their love really is. The story ends with the narrator comparing their sacrificial gifts of love with those of the Magi, the wise men, who brought gifts to the newborn king of the Jews in the manger, those of the first Christmas gifts, the first Christmas presents, and they were given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Being wise, the Magi brought gifts that were valuable. The narrator goes on to say, and here I have shared with you the story of a foolish couple in a modest apartment who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. They are like the Magi. They are the new Magi. So I ask you today, would you consider... Their gift to each other, wise or foolish? Foolish in practicality, wise in expressing their deep love. And I'm here today to tell you from the Apostle Paul that spending and being spent and serving God and others is the wisest thing you can do with your time, your talent, and your treasure. Now, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he is a special messenger uh, of the Lord. He was sent by Christ uh, to speak the word of God. God told him what to say, and he said it. But how will people know that he is from God? How will people know that his message is legitimate? How can he prove the credibility of his claim that he is an apostle? What about those who say that he is a fraud, And Satan, the enemy of God's truth, the enemy of God's servants, will spread lies and deceptions about those who serve him, you and me. No one except Christ himself has been more systematically assaulted by Satan than the Apostle Paul. And if Paul is going to write 13 of the 27 New Testament books of our New Testament, then surely he will be attacked. And so, beginning in verse 11, he says... You yourselves, you Corinthians, have compelled me. You've you've made me to do this foolish thing of having to defend myself. You already know me. I was there for nearly two years. Uh, It it is God uh, that has confirmed my ministry. I've been back to visit you. I've written you three letters before. You know me. You know my ministry. You know my life. You know my message. Well, what validates his apostleship? Look at verse twelve. This really is an amazing verse. And if you would, please underline two words in your Bible. The signs. The signs. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. This is very important. Paul says, powerful miracles were done through me in your view. It is a verifiable credential. What are the signs of an apostle? I can tell you emphatically, for the last 1,900 years, there are no apostles. There are no apostles. You hear a man in the radio or TV who says, I am an apostle. Turn him off. Change the channel. Uh, I have a message from God, a new message from God. Turn him off. Change the channel. If he is a true apostle, then he will have The signs of an apostle, and I will prove to you today that no one in our modern age has these signs, but Paul did. So what are these signs? Well, look with me closely, signs. The word sign speaks of the purpose. Uh, there in your notes, you can underlie that word purpose. The purpose of the miracle. The purpose is not to entertain a crowd. Do you know that the ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ healing people was not to make them feel better? That was not the ultimate purpose of the miracle. The ultimate purpose of the miracle was to point people that this messenger has a message from God. The ultimate purpose of the healing is that people might believe. That they might believe. And so the signs were done, and the purpose of the miracle is to be able to point people to believe the truth. The second word is wonders. Wonders. The word wonder expresses the effect, and you can underline that the effect of the miracle. It was to produce astonishment, amazement, and shock and awe, and it did. A shock and awe is not what the military does. Shock and awe is what the Christ and the apostles did when they performed these miracles. And then the third word is mighty deeds. It's one word in the Greek language, and I don't normally give you Greek words, but this one I will. It's dunamis, and we get our word what dynamite. Uh, This is something that is very powerful, and this refers to the miraculous source of the miracle. And you can underline the source. It was a supernatural act which created amazement and wonder because it had no human explanation. The supernatural sign pointed to the Apostle Paul as an instrument of the power of God. Supernatural miracles is an apostolic credential of Paul. Now, I want you to know at at this time in Jewish history, there have been many who have claimed, I am a Messiah. And they just come and they would go. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, I am the true Messiah. What's the difference between Jesus and everyone else who claims to be a Messiah? Good question. John the Baptist's disciples asked the same question in Matthew chapter 11. He's in prison. He says, you go and you tell John. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Yeah, that would separate Jesus from the other guys, wouldn't it? Those other guys didn't do that. Jesus Christ did that. What's the conclusion? God sent him. He is from God. Do you remember what the blind man said to the Pharisees after, after he received his sight in John John 9? Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet hath he opened mine eyes since the world began. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. You know, we have the same, we have the same type of confirmation in Hebrews too. Look on page two of your notes. Uh, This, too, is another amazing verse. If you would, it would be wise to put in the margin of your Bible at 2 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, put the reference Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Let me read it to you. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him god also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the holy ghost according to his own will so the writer of hebrews and we don't know for certain who that is tells us that it was the first spoken by the lord jesus it was then confirmed unto us by them that heard him well who heard the lord jesus well that would be the apostles God confirmed or verified with them, who? The apostles, signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, if you are interested in knowing what exactly they could do, you hold your finger here and go back to Mark chapter 16, and the Lord Jesus Christ leaves us uh, with, without any doubt exactly what the signs of an apostle are. So Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 17. I've given you the list uh, there in in, uh, in your notes. But listen to what what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He gives us the great commission in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world, preach a gospel to every creature. The greatest need for every person is to be saved, to be born again into the family of God. Now, how will they believe the message? Because we have no writings since 400 years ago. The last prophet was Malachi. And so this is what Jesus says. We'll pick it up in verse 17. And these signs, by the way, these are the signs of an apostle. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils or demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, snakes, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he, Jesus, was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God until he returns. And they, the apostles, went forth and preached unto everywhere, the Lord working with them, the apostles, and confirming the Word with signs following. Amen. Back in your notes, what are the specific signs? Casting out of demons. This is the word miracles. This is the power over Satan with a word or a touch. To speak in a foreign tongue that they have not studied, the ability to interpret a foreign tongue they have not studied. I'm still working on English. I can't imagine being able to speak a language that I don't know, that I had not studied, but they had the ability to do that. To take up serpents. I'm glad I'm not an apostle, but if I were, at least I'd have the promise I wouldn't get bit. Uh, To be able to uh, take up a snake, this actually happened to the Apostle Paul on the island of Malta. He's gathering sticks, and a viperous, poisonous snake uh, bites him. He shakes it off in the fire, and we have a sign of an apostle. He does not die drinking poison and not be hurt, healing the sick. Now, you need to understand that healing the sick included the ability to raise the dead. Jesus Christ raised the dead Peter raised the dead. Paul raised the dead. The men who claim to raise the dead today. Now, I, 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 Oral Roberts has not raised anyone from the dead, okay? Nor anybody like him. They're liars. You say, Pastor Wendell, you call people liars? They are liars. Let God be true, and every man a liar who disagrees with God. The signs of an apostle were for the apostles. There's never been a time in human history except the the time of Christ and the apostles in that one little location of Palestine where, where miracles were so common that sickness and disease was banished during the time of Christ. They were never normal throughout all of history. They were never common. And yet one well-known, popular, charismatic preacher has written a book called A Miracle a Day Keeps the Devil Away. It may rhyme, but it's wrong. He says if you're going to deal with Satan, you're going to have to have a daily miracle. And if you're not seeing miracle after miracle after miracle in your life, he says your faith is weak. That's a lie. That is A lie. If you do not understand the uniqueness of miracles at the time of the apostles, then you might come to the conclusion that we ought to expect these same kinds of miracles all the time. No, no. These miracles had a special purpose. Back here in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. These men had the ability to do things that we cannot do, and God confirmed them so they could give us our Bible. So, what is the purpose of miracles? Miracles, miracles were given, were used by God to introduce a new era, a new period of revelation. The first period of miracles where there was a, 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 a many miracles in a short period of time in history was the time of Moses and Joshua. This series of miracles verified that Moses was God's prophet. I'm talking about the 10 plagues of Egypt. I'm talking about parting the Red Sea. I'm talking about water from a rock and, and manna from heaven and quail that comes in. Uh, miracle after miracle. And you know what happened? God gave this man the 10 commandments, the laws that are for every generation and every group of people all over the world. This is pretty big stuff. And God verifies That Moses is God's representative. There's a second period. So you have the law represented by Moses. Then you have the prophets uh, in the time of Elijah and Elisha. They were symbolic of the office of a prophet. Many miracles occurred during the lifetime of Elijah and Elisha. Exciting stuff to read. I'm talking about the raising of, uh, uh, of the dead, uh, the widow's oil, uh, fire from heaven, uh, the parting of, of the waters of Jordan, uh, the blinding of the Syrian army, and on and on it goes. And so you got, you got two extensive periods of miracles, uh, for the law represented by Moses and for the prophets represented by Elijah and Elisha. Now, the third period is that of Christ and the Apostles. And so, the Law and the Prophets represents the Old Testament, and Christ and the Apostles represents our New Testament, confirming the New Testament. Miracles verified the Law and the Prophets. Miracles verify our New Testament. So, miracles introduce a new era of revelation in the Bible. All three periods lasted just about 90 to 100 years. Notice the second purpose of miracles, to authenticate the messengers of Revelation. Moses and Joshua were God's spokesmen. Moses did things that no man had ever done. I mean, he could put his hand in his robe, pull it out leprous. He could put it back in a second time and pull it out clean and healthy. He held his rod over the Nile River. It became blood. When Elijah went into the widow's house and raised her son from the dead, do you remember what she said? Look in your notes. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this, by this miracle, by this sign, by this mighty deed, I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Jesus said the same thing. He said, I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He said, just look at my works, look at my miracles, look at my resurrections, look at the healings. And Jesus banished disease everywhere He went. I'm not talking hundreds of people healed. I'm talking thousands of people healed. Three eras or periods to authenticate those who spoke Revelation and to, to be able to verify those messengers. God has a purpose of pointing people to the Bible, the new Revelation. I submit to you that if you have this book in your hand, you have, you have the purpose of God's miracles. This is the purpose for which God gave the miracles. And because you and I have a Bible, we don't need these kinds of miracles today. That's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus said, if they do not believe Moses, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, that's the Scripture, the Bible, they will not believe though someone be raised from the what? From the dead. In other words, Paul's saying the same thing. He says, you saw the miracles, you saw the signs, you saw the wonders that were done. Will you believe a lie from the sub-apostles, the false apostles? You weren't cheated. Now, all the churches that Paul founded, uh, they, that was with God's truth and God's power. Now, he turns the corner uh, here, and look what he says in verse 13. In verse 13. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for this wrong, he says, tongue in cheek. He turns the corner and he says, The only thing that you didn't get for me was a bill. You didn't get for me a bill. Uh, except that I myself didn't become a burden to you. I didn't charge you. The only thing you didn't get was a bill. Uh, You saw the signs. You saw the wonders. You saw the miracles. You got the truth. I preached the true gospel to you, but I didn't charge you for it. And Paul had determined from the start not to burden the Corinthians with paying for his support. Now, the false teachers, they used that to try and twist it, and they said, the reason Paul doesn't take money is Paul doesn't love you. Uh, Paul has a ministry that has no value. He is, he is nothing worth charging, and they lied about him. He did love them, and he expressed it in a myriad of ways. And then he says at the end of the verse, uh, forgive me for this wrong, <sighs> tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, really? I, I, didn't, I didn't give you a bill? I wasn't a burden to you? And, and I need to ask you to forgive me for not asking you for money? No. What is his attitude? His attitude is selflessness. He never asked them for anything. He went without. The, he, he, he told us uh, in the last chapter, he says, I deprive myself of basic needs and, until other churches met my needs. He was willing to sacrifice for them. He practiced what he told the Romans, be a living sacrifice to God. And that brings us to the second point, and that is this, his second credential. First one are supernatural signs. The second one is selfless service. So look at verse 14. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. He'd been there twice. The first visit is when he founded the church. The second time, uh, he had referred to in this letter when he came back, and and that's when it was a very sorrowful visit. He had these people confront him uh, there in the service and and accuse him of being a false apostle. After that second visit, he, he goes back and he writes to them, The third letter, which is the severe letter, now he says, I'm going to come to you the third time. I'm coming and my visit is imminent. And the false teachers would no doubt have said, oh, yeah, now he's going to come and get money. Now he's going to come and and, and make a charge. And just to make it clear, he, he he says in verse 14, I will not be burdensome to you. I will not charge you. I'm not seeking your money. I'm not seeking your stuff. I'm seeking you. I love you. And this would just irritate the false teachers. In verse 16 to 19, he he says the same thing. He says, even my co-laborers like Titus, they were not a burden to you either. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, for the children are not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Paul's saying, I'm not coming to take your money. I'm your spiritual father. I'm coming to give, not to take. Now that brings us to verse 15. And this is a great phrase to underline. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Wow. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Don't you just love it how it is in our our, our translation? We we would say today, "I, I am thrilled. I am overjoyed. I am ecstatic. I am blessed out of my socks to do this for you. To have the opportunity to do what? to spend myself, to give myself to serve you. You know, some of you love to shop, don't you? Don't you? I mean, I mean it's like therapy for you. <laughs> you just love to shop. You just, you just love the sound of the, of the, well, you just love to shop. I, you love to shop for yourself, but, but some, you love to shop for others. You love to shop for others. I mean, it's like, it's like a, uh, that, you know those five love languages? The gift giving. You love to spend on others. You love to shop for others. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Selfless service begins in the heart. It begins in the heart. And Paul had that. In fact, it was so deep in his heart in Romans 9 and in verse 3. Uh, in Romans 9, 3, it's in your notes. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And that means as he, is, he is, would almost be willing to trade his salvation if he could get somebody else saved in the Jewish nation. Incredible statement, incredible love. It begins in the heart, but it shows up in my life. And Paul says, getting the gospel to you may cost me my very life. And he says, that's okay. That is, okay, I'm willing to give up my life for you. He was like his Lord who came not to be ministered unto, but to give his life a, a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Great, great passage. This man would have literally spent everything he had to bring the gospel to people. What does that mean? I mean, he'll spend his money, he'll spend his time, he'll spend his strength, his energy, his everything. He is spending it until it's all spent, and he has nothing left for the very sake Of their souls. This is what he says. Paul, who had very little, wanted to spend everything he had, including his own life, on others, because he was so committed to their eternal souls. Now, verse 15, the end of it, look what he says. Uh, He says, The more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. The more affection he gave them, the less they returned it. The more he loved, the less they loved. Can't you feel the emotion here? He just wanted their love. He just wanted their appreciation of the gospel. He didn't want their money. He wanted gratitude. He wanted love. And he's saying, is, is this the thanks that I'm going to get? And I love what Paul said to the Philippians about spending himself on others. Uh, I have it in your notes, Philippians 2.17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith... I joy and rejoice with you all. Where are you going to find that kind of joy? Where are you going to find that kind of happiness? Let me just show you the cover of a, uh, of a DVD. The secular people are trying to figure it out. And so they, they, the, the, the secular researchers got together. They did brain studies to try and figure out what makes people happy all over the world. And I want you to know, even though they're they're lost, that there's some some correlations and and in these brain studies that confirm what I'm telling you today, spending on others. So they're, they're secular, but just listen. Listen for the parallels from secular people on trying to figure out what makes people happy. Watch.
1: What do you want out of life? Uh, to be successful, to be happy, and uh, to live a long, healthy life. What's going to make you successful and happy? What what will make you feel like you're successful and happy? Uh, Right now, money. Yeah, lots of money. We're told in our society that the way to be a competent person, the way to be a good person, is to make a lot of money. In the last 50 years, economic growth has gone up a lot. In America, for example, we're about twice as wealthy as we were 50 years ago. But nationally representative surveys of people's happiness show that happiness has remained stagnant. People aren't any happier than they were 50 years ago, even though they're living in a lot bigger houses, they have more cars. Anybody who says money doesn't buy happiness should go talk to somebody living under a bridge. But anybody who says money buys happiness should go talk to Bill Gates. Okay? Neither of those things is actually true. When money buys you out of the burdens of homelessness, of not knowing where your next meal will come from, <coughs> it changes your happiness dramatically. But once you have basic needs met, more money doesn't seem to buy more happiness. The difference in happiness between a person who earns 5000 and 50000 is dramatic. The difference in happiness between a person who earns 50000 and $50 million is not dramatic. We studied some of the happiest people, and we found, without exception, that all of them had close, supportive family and friends. That didn't mean that they loved everybody or, uh, you know, they got along with everybody, but what it meant was every one of them had close family and friends. We make a distinction between two main kinds of goals or values which people might pursue in life intrinsic goals and extrinsic goals. So extrinsic goals are extrinsic in the sense that they're focused on something external to you. They're focused on rewards, they're focused on praise, they're focused on getting stuff. And the three main examples of extrinsic goals we've looked at in our research are for money, financial success, for image, kind of looking good, having the right appearance, and for status or popularity. Now we contrast those with intrinsic goals. Intrinsic goals are inherently satisfying in and of themselves because they have to do with intrinsic psychological needs that all people have. And the three intrinsic goals, which we've studied, are goals for personal growth, trying to be who I really am, having close, connected relationships with, like, friends and my loved ones, and then community feeling, which is having a sense of wanting to help the world to be a better place. We found that intrinsic goals are on the exact opposite side of value systems compared to extrinsic goals, Okay, They're in opposition with each other. The other thing we know from decade of research at this point is that people who were more oriented towards money and status and image were uh, reporting less satisfaction with their lives, they were more depressed, more anxious, we found that they felt less vital, less sort of energized in their day-to-day life. On the other hand, intrinsically oriented people were more happy, they were reporting more vitality, less depression, less anxiety. If our values are a key component of happiness, that may explain one of the anomalies in international happiness research. According to an increasing amount of data, Japan is the least happy of the
0: wealthy industrialized nations. We ask people to count their blessings on a regular basis. Say every Sunday night you sit down, and you write down five things for which you're grateful. And kind of try to contemplate that. And we found that the students who counted their blessings once a week, every Sunday night, became happier. A couple studies we did, we asked people to commit acts of kindness on a regular basis. You know, they're going out and they're putting change in parking meters, and they're, you know, helping their friend with homework, or was visiting someone in the nursing home, or, you know, really doing real, you know, concrete behaviors. And it seems to me from our experience that the acts of kindness so far have been uh, the most effective. Pretty interesting. Here it is, secular researchers trying to figure out how to be happy, and they're saying close, supportive family and friends. Not focusing on money, not focusing on image, looking good, status, popularity, but rather personal growth, and we would say spiritual growth, Close friends, family, counting your blessings, being thankful, doing acts of kindness, serving others. Folks, may I say it very plainly to you today, you have a great opportunity to have the joy of the Lord by serving God and others right here in our church family. You know, if the church is too small, the church is too big, you may have a difficult time finding your niche your place of service. I've been around a long long time enough to know that that our churches are the right size for everyone to find a place to serve God and someone else. Do you want to spend and be spent on others? Another way to ask it is do you want the dopamine to increase in your brain so you can be happy? Do you want the dopamine to increase in your brain to be happy? Follow what Paul said. That doesn't mean you won't go through trials, but it means you won't go through the trials alone. I've asked a number of our leaders to send me some of the rotating lists of people serving and got a whole list, a number of lists of people that are involved in serving. Let's go through some of the slides here. Uh, here, Here's an usher schedule. We got some 40-some guys working on the usher schedule. The next one... Uh, you see the uh, junior church schedule. There are several of these. In the next one, uh, you see the uh, current musicians. And then in the next one, uh, here it is. You know, here, here's someone teaching. You know, it takes time. It takes time to be able to put a lesson together to teach. And some of these guys will spend uh, six, eight, ten, some of the ladies, ten hours to prepare a message. And I have a, I have a uh, note to announce to you, but let me just give it right now. Don't, don't spend the next hour in the hallway not being where you need to be. Don't say, well, well I'm a church, but you're really you're just uh, checking your cell phone, your emails, your text. Those hallways should be empty uh, during the service because these people are spending their time preparing. In the next slide, uh, here's, uh, here's a bunch of folks. They've spent multiplied hours getting ready for tonight and every week. And you want to be here, and you want to invite others to, to, to celebrate the, the Christmas season, the birth of our Savior. What an opportunity to invite others to come out, but, but uh, many involved, giving their time uh, musically. And, and then in the next slide, you uh, you, you see serving there in the nursery. And, and by the way, there's this, we got a little baby boom going on right now. And, and that means we got a lot of diapers to change. And we'd rather do that back there than in here. So uh, maybe you want to sign up for the nursery or be uh, on a substitute list. But thank you for serving in the nursery. And then in the next slide uh, uh, here are our ushers. And the next slide. So, so Paul's going end with some closing concerns. But you want to be involved in spending and being spent for God and for others. We're almost out of time, but look at the end of verse 19. He says, "He says, dearly beloved, for your edifying, verse 20, for I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I would, I shall f- be found unto you such as you would not. Lest there be, look at this, I don't want this in your church, debates, envyings, wrath strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. These are the sins of the Spirit. Paul gives this list of how we're to treat one another. Keep these sins out of your life. Keep these sins out of your church. Now, I'm not going to go through each one and identify them, uh, but let me just say it this way. Stop being mean to each other. Start being nice to each other. Isn't that what he's saying? and you know who I'm talking to. No, no, God is talking to you. Stop being mean to each other. Start being nice to each other. That's what this list really means. Notice the second list is the sins of the flesh. And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall be well, be sorrowful, uh, because of many which have sinned already and have not repented Now, look what he says, "...of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed." Sins of the flesh. Keep the sins of the spirit out of your life. Keep the sins of the flesh out of your life. Uncleanness. What is this? We're talking pornography. We're talking the Saturday night live type shows, popular shows like Glee, any kind of gutter talk, sexual innuendos. Put it out. Fornication. Any kind of sexual sin. Any kind of sexual intimacy between anyone who is not married to each other. This, of course, would forbid homosexuality. Lasciviousness. Indecent. Immoral. Sensual. Any kind of impurity. Put it out of your life. Put it out of your life is what he says. Pastor Michigan has three boys. Uh, I was listening to him speak uh, uh, by way of video, and he said, you know, my, my oldest was 12, and I had these two, two younger boys, and he said, uh, give, give mom a break. We're walking through the mall, and he said, I, my oldest son, he's 12, he's hitting puberty, and you know, i we're walked by this magazine rack, and it had that, you know, that Sports Illustrated uh, uh, swimsuit, bikini issue, and there were some others there. And he says, I just kind of held back just to see what my son would do. I thought, is he going to be, is he going to notice? And sure enough, the son's head turned and looked, and, and so just past it, he stopped him. And the other two boys, yours is kind of like, you know, didn't, didn't see a thing. And so he stops him and he says, hey, son, did, did you see that magazine rack over there? So oh, no, no. He knows he's lying because he saw him look. He says... Uh, I did. He says, did he, yeah, I, I guess I did. I did see it. He says, did, did, you, did you like what you saw? He said, oh, no, no. And the dad says, well, you know, I looked and, and I, I kind of liked what I saw. He said, well, yeah, I did too. Uh, he said, um, he says, well, let me tell you. He says, I kind of look at that at like looking at sewer water. And if you drink sewer water, you get sick. He says, I have eyes for your mom. I love your mom. He says, tell you what, can we, can we make a pact and we'll help each other out here when we come upon those things and, and help each other to turn away? That, that's what he's saying to the church. I want to help you turn away from the sexual sin. I want to keep you away from the sins of the flesh. Well, Jesus said it this way. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Spending yourself on others is one of the best investments that you can do every day for yourself and also others for others. Spending on others. What a great thought from Paul. May we pray. Father, thank you for your word and the power of it and what it means to each one of us. And today we're grateful to be in your house and to hear from heaven. Now speak to our hearts in such a way that we in turn can be a blessing to others. Thank you for the blessing you are to our hearts. I pray now you bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand together. As we stand, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you're here today and you're not certain that heaven is your home, we invite you to come. We just, it's a public invitation. You step out, you come down, and you can speak to a pastor, a pastor's wife, and we'll show you God's promises of how you can know that heaven's your home. It's not joining a church. It's not getting baptized. It's not being good. It's receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you step out when you come down, and we'll speak to you. We'll go to a private room to share with you God's good news. And maybe you here today, you say, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm saved, but my pockets are full. I'm spending nothing on others and God. I have no place of service. God wants you to serve, and in serving, he will bless you, and you'll have joy and happiness Unspeakable. You come as we sing. Have thine own way. Verse one, one fifty-five in the hymnal. Have thine own way, Lord.